Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 28, Own Your Domain. And this is Tom Lawrence. And Jay LaCroix. Yes. And we decided we need to talk about this before there's a whole list of things that come after this. You know, reverse proxies and kind of fun things and maybe email talk. But you have to own a domain first to get a lot of those working. So we thought this is a good episode to put in front of all those other episodes that we want to get to. We're starting to build a tree of all the different things, but each one of these has a base before it splits off to the little trees of the things you can do with it. That's uh, some of our thought process on this. <laughs> yep. Yep. We had all the discussion on it and there was a few things I won't spoil anything that we're considering talking about, but without this discussion, it's like, well, we'll have a lot of backtracking to do. Yep. But that does start with buying a domain. We don't have any recommendation for who to buy the domain from, but we do have a recommendation of who can handle DNS and maybe some of the things you want to host when you own your domain. And that would be Linode. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you are downloading it from the Linode servers that host the Home Lab show. Uh, we've been Linode users, both me and Jay, for a while. Jay, uh, much more extensively. Uh, how much of your infrastructure is run on Linode? Everything that's internet facing at this point, like nothing internal to my home lab at, at this point is uh, internet facing. So um, VPN is what I use to get into my home lab, but everything that's public facing, I throw in Linode and it's been a great service. Yeah, it's really nice and it supports, and this will be very relevant later, uh, Linode supports DNS challenge for doing uh, the Acme certs. I'm correct on that, right, Jay? Because I'm yep. not using them for that yet. I'm going that's to. what I use. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's what I use. Yep. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, our friend Phil, um, who you may, if you remember me and Jay being on the Sunday Morning Lace Review, more news on that at some later date. We're trying to revive some of that. But anyways, um, he actually helped write some of the code to activate this. I remember he did some pull requests to fix a few things to get that activating properly. So, yep. yes. Uh, and, well, the cool thing about doing that when you own a domain is the fact that you uh, don't have to open up any ports to do it. That's what the DNS challenge is. For those of you that don't know, it's all done through API. So it's one more good reason to Linode. And if you decide you want to use Linode, we do have an offer code down below in the description. So go ahead and use that and uh, get started with Linode and get your domain and point it over there. Get the DNS set up. It's all kinds of fun stuff you can learn. So I guess the first thing about buying domains is going to be where. Do you have a preference, Jay? I like Hover. I'm going to say, it was funny. I didn't ask this before. We didn't even discuss this part of it because I said we don't have a sponsor for where to buy domains. Um, but I use Hover. Jay uses Hover. And yeah. uh, I actually, I just learned Jay uses Hover. I didn't look before here. It was kind of a guess. But I assumed Hover's yeah. um, one of the easier ones out there. They have a lot of different. Uh, well, I think they have all the common or at least most popular uh, top levels. So you can really find something on there. Now, there's no offer code or recommendation. That's just what we use. One of the yep. reasons I use them, though, and probably the same reason Jay uses those, uh, Hover, is because if you've ever used uh, GoDaddy, and I, I can't express my annoyance with them enough, they are like an upsell machine. That's they mm -hmm. will try to pack on every service um, they can to try to bug you about it. That's always been the case with them. They have a lot of little aggravating things they do. Uh, and Hover is just domain. It's really simple. And that's one of the reasons I like them. And they offer free email forwarding. So uh, big, you know, it, it, so much simplicity in it. And I, I don't know. Someone said they, they don't do it anymore. Uh, they used to have their service where they offer to migrate domains for you automatically. I think they call it their concierge service or something. You used to be able to call them and just they would move all the domains from on one of the other carriers over for you. Uh, but they're really simple to use. They 
dead yep. simple interface and they're focused. They just sell you domains. <laughs> and you mentioned GoDaddy. I think the only company that might be worse is Network Solutions. Like I, I remember using uh, them with a previous company I worked for and everything was a chore. I, I was on GoDaddy before I knew better, like a long time ago. And when I moved all the domains off of that and onto Hover, um, that was a great time because I didn't have to deal, you know, deal with it anymore. And um, I like Hover a lot for all the reasons that you mentioned. They um, they don't do hosting. It's domains and email. You can't buy a cert from them. They're very targeted on what they're for. They're not trying to get into too many things, which is what I like. I like the customer service as well. I think that's one of the reasons why I like to use them the most is the customer service. Now, the lack of hosting doesn't bother us, right? We just need a domain and we need a, yeah. a place to buy it from. And for email, I often recommend them for email too. I, I want to say it's like $25 a year plus the cost of a domain for an email package. If you don't want to run your own, your, you know, your own server, if you want to get away from Gmail, um, there's other solutions out there too. They're obviously not the only one, but I, I think their email service is great. I often uh, steer my clients in that direction. They seem to like it quite a bit. So between the you know domain and email, I think they pretty much have it uh, covered. Yeah, that's um, and they're very upfront about the pricing. And because I seen someone in the chat right away say some of these places are really cheap on on their offering, but then the renewals yeah. are really high. Yeah, because of the pain of moving and the convenience of just having it with the same uh, registrar and them slowly increasing the price or not so slowly just slapping you with a high price on there, uh, that can be an aggravation. But that's not the bigger point is where to buy them. Why should you buy a domain? And that's, yeah. that's the real crux wow. of this uh, issue here. We are, and by the way, you already you know you should be hosting it on Linode. So that's uh, if you're not hosting it at home or on your home lab servers, use the Linode offer code and uh, host it on Linode. So we got that part sorted out. <laughs> yes, we do. And a, a domain is is kind of fun. It 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 gives you this like enterprise um, seeming quality of your home lab, even though you know it, it's a home lab. I mean, make no mistake, some of us, we put more effort into our home lab than, you know, system administrators put into their business network sometimes. But um, having a domain is almost like making it official. Obviously, it, it's just a name. But at the end of the day, it, it's great to have. And then if it's something cool, something catchy, it's like if you want to VPN into your home network, it could be vpn.yourdomain.com. And that's your domain. So it could get you right in there. It's just easy to remember. You can have subdomains for all of your servers to get to them easily. And you can integrate it with the DNS inside your home lab. So that way, you know, everything resolves. And there's a little bit of a strategy I think we'll get to later that uh, Tom and I were talking about last night as far as some of the clever workarounds that you can do to kind of make it even better. Yeah, and another one of the things that's really important is owning your email address. Now, the email wars aren't what they used to be because I, I had an original um, at home address, and at home.com used to be uh, one of the big first, well, I think they were one of the first big uh, cable hosting providers. And one of the problems is when they went belly up, uh, your email went with it because they got sold off and eventually became, I think. I don't know if it was Comcast or Why Up and West bought some of their assets uh, for different internet providers, but it was common in the early days, 20 years ago, that you just got an email address from one of those providers. But the problem is if a provider changes, they change their domain, you suddenly have your email changed. And this yep. is one of the really good reasons to own your domain. Even if you're forwarding it on the back end, having a consistent email address on the front end is a great reason to own domain and another bonus. And I actually know a lot of you that sign up to my forums do this and Hey, thumbs up for doing it. I don't blame you. Uh, 
they come up with custom email addresses at yourdomain.com when you register for different things, such as my forums. So someone mm -hmm. will create an email address, tomsforums at thing.com. And what they're doing is they want to see if Tom sends spam or starts marketing or sells their address, because you would very much know if you only used it in one place, where that place is that sold that domain or sold your information. So that's another kind of bonus is one, you can have a consistent email address and two, you can come up with custom email addresses instead of having to use a junk email all the time. Um, you know, cause I bet all of us still have a Yahoo email address somewhere that's just collecting all the spam for everything we signed up for, but then you have the trouble of checking it and things like that. So it's a, having a consistent domain like that is very helpful in that aspect as well. And it's a lot of fun when you are buying something from a retail store in person and they're like, do you want to uh, sign up for our list? And I'll say no, but you'll save 10%. I'm like, okay, fine. What's your email address? Um, spam at mydomain.com. The look yeah. on their face is priceless, but it, it is a real address. It's just yeah. in my email client. It Anything that comes into spam at the domain.com is automatically, because of the rule, put into the spam folder, even if it's technically not spam. So that way, you know, I have that little extra thing to give out and, you know, that checks the box. Yep. It's, it's a really nice convenience. Uh, we have, we have so many silly email addresses registered at forlearnsystems.com. I wish I could tell them, but then people would spam them and I, it would ruin it. But there's some funny ones that we do uh, for different things. It's it, once you start doing it, it becomes part of how you manage uh, things in logins. Yep. You, you, matter of fact, it's from a security standpoint, not knowing what email address I use to register for a service. If that service ever um, gets dumped or something like that, it's it's one more component like, oh, I don't, I, I think I know this password, but oh wait, the email address isn't the one I would suspect he would be using for this. So um, it can add that little bit of obscurity to it. So that's, that's yep. one of the other advantages of having your own domain. Another one about email, and then, then we'll get off the email subject yeah. is, um, a lot of people will use their ISP email, and at first it might not seem like that's a big deal, but if you move and then that provider is not available where you move to, I mean, depending on the ISP, you might be able to pay to keep that email, but probably not. So now you're bothered with you know letting everybody know what your new email address is. But if your email address is independent of your ISP, you could just carry that yeah. with you. And uh, similarly, I have a lot of clients that'll call me and I, I hate this call so much, but I love to help people out. But there's nothing I could do about this when they call me and say, um, my Yahoo email dashboard is completely different. Please oh. work with me to change it back. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I can't because Yahoo is Yahoo. And first of all, why are you as a business using a Yahoo email? But anyway, um, no, I can't just call Yahoo and tell them that they need to switch it back because you don't like the interface. If you don't own an email address, you go the direction that your provider goes and that's it. You don't really have a say in that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, those are all wonderful reasons for it. Now, the next reason really mm -hmm. comes down to um, the being able to, and, and you may have seen this if anyone's watched my videos and Jay's videos as well, we use the fully qualified domain name and they can be used not just externally, but internally. Uh, so we're going to, what do you think about that, Jay? That's probably a good place to start. I think it is a great place to start. And I think what I want to do first and foremost, and I apologize if there's background noise because the lawn service just decided that right now is exactly the time to do the lawn. Um, <laughs> but one thing I want to get out of the way is this very common misconception, which is very common from people that come from a Windows environment or a Windows work environment, 
where they think uh, when we say domain, they they think what we're talking about is a domain controller. Yes, you can set up a domain controller in your home lab. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. But using a domain in your home lab, it does not require a domain controller. They are not one and the same thing. We're talking about you know, Active Directory, which is essentially an LDAP server for authentication. And often, you know, an administrator will check the box to have it be the domain controller, the DHCP, um, all of those different things in one box. So when people first get into this, they think of a domain in your home lab as in setting up a domain controller, which again, you can do, but you don't have to do that. So um, that's kind of the place to start, I think, is that misconception. I don't know if you get that question a lot, but um, I seem to get that one where people think that that's, uh, you need a domain controller um, specifically. And of note, despite your ability, and for example, my domain being lawrencesystems.com, and there are people who may do things like name their Windows domain the same as their website. Don't do that. That is... Uh, that right. will cause you some drama when you're trying to get to your website from inside your network because it'll always want to redirect to the other server. Uh, just side note, you're not going to dive deep in a topic. Just don't give it the same name exactly as your main domain uh, if you are setting up a Windows domain. Yeah, I totally agree. Yep. So you buy the domain from Hover or wherever else and you have the domain. So, okay, now what, right? You you have a domain and obviously if you're hosting something on Linode or some other provider, you could attach that domain to your website and then you have a website at that domain, which is the lowest level of this. But we're talking about home lab though. So how exactly do you map a domain to your home lab? Now, the first thing I think we have to get out of the way is static IP versus DHCP IP from your ISP, meaning... Um, is your ISP, do, do they offer a static IP service? And I think all of them do, but most of them limit that to the business internet. So that means if I would venture a guess that the majority of our audience is probably not going to have access to a static IP from their ISP. Um, obviously, I, ha I have business internet, so I can do that. And you do too, because I think we have the same provider. So um, they charge you more for it, obviously. I don't know if I would say it's worth the extra cost to just um, say, hey, I'm, I'm Acme and then get a business account because they'll charge you for it. So um, if you could get a static IP, it's easy because you just, um, you know, make your records point to that IP address. And often if an ISP gives you a static IP, they'll give you, you know, several of those. So you could say my Proxmox is this one, you know, PFSense is that one. You could kind of just assign them that way. But that's probably out of reach for most. I think a lot of people are going to need uh, dynamic DNS. So the idea is you have things internally, you want to access them from your domain. So how do you do this? Now, one way that you could do this is using dynamic DNS, like I mentioned. And what that'll do is give you a, um, you know, basically a domain name. But the problem is it's not going to be one that you chose. I mean, they'll give you some options, but it could be like, user four five seven eight ten dot something dot something dot you know dynamic dns.com or whatever it is and it's this long thing it's like well how do you remember that i mean the whole point of getting a domain is to make it easy to remember and if you use a dynamic dns service that kind of negates the point but one workaround here is that you could use a c name which you could point um basically you could point that to your or your actual domain that you purchased to your dynamic dns domain name and you don't have to remember that anymore and the, be the beauty of this is that if you change dynamic dns providers 
you can just change the C name and you're done. So that's one way that a lot of people, you know, doing home lab can experience the benefit of a domain without having to get the static, you know, having to, you know, pay for static IPs. You might not even be able to. So a C name might be a way um, that you can do this. And most of these providers have agents that run uh, within reach of your cable modem. And if your IP changes, it'll update the dynamic IP on the dynamic DNS service. So that's one thing that you can do to consider or consider for starting. The um, nice thing is, and maybe uh, this might be a, a little bit more of a deep dive at some point, is explaining mm-hmm. all the different things for DNS. I, right. I, I've seen people asking about email. And one of the things you can do is even if you're hosting a domain and you point all your DNS at Linode, you can have separate mail servers such as G Suite, Office 365, or insert name of your favorite mail hosting company um, that you maybe want to use or go all out and hate yourself a little bit more and host it yourself. Uh, but then once you start understanding all the different record types, like a C name um, and the A records and understanding how that works, it actually becomes very, it sounds very complex, but it ends up being relatively simple uh, when right. you do this. You just match the C name to the dynamic DNS. And as the dynamic DNS keeps changing, it's no big deal. Your domain always stays the same. Yep. And I th- so a quick example of this playing out, just so um, everyone's on the same page. So let's just say you have a VPN appliance and you want a VPN into your home network and you want vpn.mydomain.com. So first of all, you buy mydomain.com and you own that now or whatever it happens to be. And then inside in your registrar, you could create an A record for um, a subdomain. So you create vpn.mydomain.com as a subdomain. And then you can, if you have a static IP, you could just obviously, you know, make the A record for the VPN subdomain um, the static IP and you're done. Or you make that a C name to your dy- dynamic DNS name. And then, you know, at that point you have it pointing to your home network. So then you can refer to your open VPN or whatever it is as vpn.mydomain.com. Now notice that at no point in this description did I talk about a domain controller. Because like I mentioned, I think this is why it's confusing for a lot of people. They assume based on where they work that you need that. It's a value add. So here, all we did was we bought a domain, we set the A record or a C name appropriately, and now it points to our home network. And at no point did we set up a server to handle this. It's just using an external registrar pointing to the cable modem. And now you actually have something pointing internally to your network. So that's one place to start. And then if you want to add proxmox.mydomain.com or PVE or whatever it is, you just create that one the same way. It's another subdomain. It could point to the same IP. You could point to the same IP hundreds of times. Actually, I don't know what the limit is, but you could just keep referring to it. And then, um, you know, we'll get to, we'll get to how we route the traffic later. But I think it's important to have the starting point of knowing what we want to accomplish and what it actually looks like. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I've seen someone pop in, and this is actually a really common question, I guess. What's the best dynamic DNS service? Honestly, I don't know because I've never had to use one in the last 10 years. So we don't, most of the stuff we do with is commercial. And even my home, uh, my IP address at home has changed only when I change out my router. Uh, when, for the most part, I it's uh, it, at least the networks I've seen from Comcast, Wide Open West, and Spectrum, you don't really get an IP address changed that often. So we don't run into too many problems with it. Uh, so it's hard to evaluate. And if the, you right. know, I've seen someone mention Cloudflare, I think offers dynamic DNS. Cloudflare is a pretty well-known name. Uh, try any of them. And if it works well and doesn't break, 
awesome <laughs> and, and uh, right. kind of avail you from there. It, it's a pretty simple service. I don't know if there's any of them that are, are, are particularly good or particularly bad at it. It's just updating the IP address. Um, and if you're using something like PFSense, it's built in. There's a long list of providers built in, quite a few of them. So take the pick of whatever one looks like the nicest website. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember the name that I of the one that I used. I hope somebody in the chat room um, knows this one. I used to use this before I had a dynamic or, or a static IP. And what was cool about this one is that it supported mo updating multiple services. So that that was cool because you didn't have to like make you know make that happen yourself. You could add a bunch of things that you want it to update, and it'll just proxy or do something to update all of those. Um, I just wish I could remember the name of it. Now, some routers that are available in the retail world, I know retail is not always something that we go for in Home Lab. I think some ASUS routers have dynamic DNS built into them. So you could just use that if you have it. And um, that might just do the trick. Otherwise, maybe if we, oh, DNS-O-Matic. Yep, someone mentioned it in the chat room. That's the one I used to use. I haven't used it in a, a while. But that was the one I used, DNS-O-Matic, and that's the one that'll update multiple services. That might be a good place to start if the yeah. route doesn't have that. So, um, yeah, there you go. There's a recommendation for DNS. Yep, so hopefully that covers that. Now, ultimately, one of the things that we want to get to, because a lot of people just don't like clicking through the stupid self-signed certificates, and this is, oh, yeah. this is a pain. Um, and putting everything in a reverse proxy is a little bit of a process and uh, is, setting up yeah. a, the good news is in, I have videos on this, the HA proxy videos, although still there's always a lot of questions. I've got three of them now. And the third one is just a troubleshooting video of common things uh, people overlook. And even me and Jay had a discussion because there was a couple things that were a little bit confusing about the way the front end and back end is handled in there. Uh, so maybe yep. me and Jay might dive into it again. It's, it is a little bit of a complex topic, but once you take the time to understand yep. it, uh, HA proxy with PFSense combined with Let's Encrypt. So you do your DNS challenge response, which means you can get a wildcard Let's Encrypt certificate. Wildcarding it means for each domain, such as graylog.lawrencesystems.com, such as unify.lawrencesystems.com, and all these different ones that maybe you've seen me use in my videos, they're all using the same wildcard certificate for the lawrencesystem.com. This allows me to create any amount without having to re-register anything. I just create a DNS entry. Matter of fact, one of the things I showed uh, Jay is you can look up some of my public-facing DNS, and it resolves to local IP addresses that point to the HA proxy internally at our office uh, for setup. There's, yeah. uh, you know, I, I cover that in my video. It's, it's some people get a little bit confused by, it, but once you kind of get the hang of it and understand where all the data needs to go and where it needs to point, you go, oh, this makes sense. And then you can start registering any servers you want in really a few clicks. Once you have the base structure set up and you go, hey, I want to spin up another uh, TrueNAS, give it a name and or call it TrueNAS or TrueNAS1, TrueNAS2, whatever you want to call your NAS. And then you create a domain for it. And now you don't have to do the self-signed certificate error. It goes through and away you go. Now you have one more device on your list. Now these yep. can be internal or external facing, depending on how you configure them. And they can be both simultaneously. So there's different options and those are all covered in depth. Like I said, that my HA proxy video is a little bit long. I think it's about an hour, uh, but there's a lot to cover to get that all working and set up. There is. And I, I think what I'm going to do just to also make this even better is, is to kind of walk everyone through, you know, another layer of this because 
Um, I'll use Nextcloud as an example, and I'll use PFSense as an example. Although you can just change, P, you know, PFSense to Aces or you know whatever your firewall slash router happens to be. And same with Nextcloud. If it's a web server, it doesn't really matter. So let's just, and I'll use the static IP as this example. You know, it could be CNAME. We'll just uh, let you, the listener, insert or remove uh, matching terms appropriately. So you have the domain. And you make the IP address, let's just say, equal to the um, static IP of your PFSense. So at this point, um, if people go to, you know, router.yourdomain.com, firewall.yourdomain.com, they're getting to your PFSense or your router at this point. Now, I'm not advocating for making PFSense publicly available for everyone to try to hack. I'm just using this as an example. At this point, having a domain and having the IP address attached to the domain, the IP address of your you know, cable modem, essentially, that gets external people to your um, PFSense, which, of course, is they're just going to get dropped because PFSense sees it. Someone's requesting something like, uh, I don't know what to do with this. It's uh, an external IP, but I have internal IPs here, so... Um, I'm not going to do anything with that. So at this point, all you've really succeeded in doing is getting people to your PFSense. Now, the next step is taking that traffic and routing it to the proper internal server. So if it's Nextcloud, then what we have to do is make it understandable that if a you know someone on the outside is looking for nextcloud.mydomain.com, they get to your cable modem or your I mean your PFSense. And PFSense needs to hand that off to something else to route it to the appropriate server. And that's the next step. You could do a proxy like Nginx, HA proxy, like you just mentioned, that inspects the name that was requested and then, you know, forwards that individual to the proper server on the inside. I use a, or I have used a uh, container with Nginx. I don't have anything externally available now, but. When I did, that's how I did it. I had a Proxmox container that was um, on there running Nginx, and it was looking at what was being requested and would just uh, send you through to the proper device on the inside. So when it comes to setting up that proxy side of things, that's a video slash episode in and of itself, because I would love to tell you just install Nginx and, and put these values in there. But there's so many parameters, and usually what I do is go to the documentation for whatever I'm running, and they'll often have the Nginx parameters in there that work best with that product. So that's why it's hard to make a video about this, because it really depends on what you're proxying to, and you just follow the, you know, the documentation. But at this point, if you have proxy that's handing off the request internally, then you have the completed solution. And then we talk about, like you just mentioned, the certificate side of things. Because now that the traffic is being routed, you can actually much easier get a cert because if you just have the IP address going to your PFSense, you could get a cert for your PFSense right then and there because the traffic is going there. But after that, you need proxy or something like, or even port forwarding to uh, make that happen. Yeah, and it can be a little bit confusing when you look at reverse proxies, especially when they all rely on SNI. And this is where it gets a little right. confusing. Um, server, the server name, <clears throat> server name indication, that is the SNI header, and you'll have the same IP address. And I see people in the comments saying they're having some trouble with uh, HA proxy. And this is often where people get confused. You end up having, <clears throat> excuse me, you end up having the same 
IP address. So you have one static IP address, or you can have multiple, but for simplification, we're going to do one. But you can have many domains all hosted on there. The SNI header that gets sent is based on a couple things. The browser does a, you know, a DNS lookup, provides your DNS server answers correctly, then it hits the IP address. That IP address it hits, it's going to say, here's the thing I think should be here. It's this.yourdomain.com. HAProxy goes, do I have an entry for this? Or really any reverse proxy does this, even if it's not on your firewall. But the reverse proxy is going to examine that header and then serve up the content or make the backend connection to the server that corresponds to that SNI header. Getting all that right is why these are a little bit tricky. And uh, one of the things I show, and I believe I have this in my uh, troubleshooting video, is how to use um, the OpenSSL testing tools from the command line to actually send the SNI. So you can essentially forge the header and make the request and see what the response is. Because one, do you have that set up right? You think so, great. How about we force a response and look at the, or force a SNI header and then get it back. These are some of the troubleshooting uh, that makes it a little bit tricky to set up, but once it works and I've seen people say, yeah, once I got it working, it's like a light bulb turns on and like, this is so easy to set up all these domains on here. Yes. It's all that, all these little mechanics of getting it right. But it's really handy then at that point too. This is uh, to go a step further for people that want to know how this works in the enterprise world. And Jay can probably speak a little bit to this. Um, that one of the advantages of having these proxies direct traffic is let's say I have, you know, this, it's all coming in, it hits this IP address, but the back end, I can actually load balance. I can say, send some of the requests to this server, send some of the requests to that server, or I can modify the configuration really quick to spin up another server and do them. You've, you've done some of that work, haven't you, Jay, for reverse yep. load balancing? Um, load balancing, yes. I've done that in AWS. I haven't had a home lab reason yet, but I think I probably will because it'd be cool. Um, <laughs> I mean, why else do it, right? But um, so basically, one, one missing layer I, I forgot to, to mention is you have the the you know reverse proxy server, whatever it is. How do you get the traffic to it? Well, in my case, when I was doing that, um, I had a port forward in PFSense, port 80 and port 443, we're both being forwarded to that container with Nginx, and then the container would proxy to the, each of the services. Now, I considered that container to be disposable. It was highly secured when I did use it, and I had like, I didn't even use the same SSH keys for this. So it was at that level of, of abstraction there. And the beauty of it is if anything did happen to it, I'll just delete it. There's no data on it that I care about. It's just a proxy. It just hands off to other services. That's all. And that being disposable is, is the best way to do it because if anything happened, I'll delete it and I'll just back it up from an image. I mean, I just restore, I mean, it's just let's encrypt at the end of the day and they aut automatically renew. So it was really easy to do. And having that segregated, it gives you some extra security. I wouldn't say much, but it does give you, I don't know, but one, one or 5% better security because your app isn't directly exposed to the internet. The proxy is now, obviously it's just passed through though. So if there's a vulnerability in the app, then it's still a vulnerability nonetheless, but you still have a situation where someone might just own the proxy box and, and then, you know, they just own that one thing. And if it's disposable, delete it, find out why or how they got in and then you know reimage it or whatever, but yeah, that that does give you give you a level of abstraction, and I, I think that's really important to have. Now another thing, and I right away see a little more confusion here right in the comments, but this is this is a really good thing to think of as a distinction. So if we think of something like NAT, 
NAT is just a hole in the firewall that's going to take something from the public IP address and land it internally uh, to whatever you def uh, defined you want to land on. Proxies work a little bit different because they technically man in the middle it because they're brokering the connection. So HA proxy handles the SSL termination. So there's AJ proxy sitting at your public IP and it handles the SSL termination or if you private IP, same concept, the AJ proxy handles SSL termination between the web browser and there. Then another session is created between HA proxy and whatever you told it to point to. Now that is really important because this is where you can do some fun things. If you want to inject something in there, HA proxy is essentially man in the middle this connection. It's terminating the TLS. So your TLS connection from a browser doesn't pass through HA proxy. HA proxy is handling the termination and then talking to the subsequent server based on what the rule sets are. The reason that's important to understand is it's where a lot of people get confused of when, well, an easy example, unless you tell HA proxy to also forward some other information, HA proxy, when it talks to an internal server and a bunch of external people are hitting it, the internal server logs only see HA proxy. They're like, I don't know, HA proxy was requesting this and requesting that. It doesn't see that external user uh, from their browser or anything like that. Now there's ways you can get that data to forward over, but like the default next and yes options in HA proxy to get it configured does not forward that information. But this is also an important distinction for when people want to do things. Uh, in, I, this was actually brought up a couple of videos ago I did with Riley Chase talking a little bit about proxies um, in front of his Hostify service that he offers because by offering the proxy there, he doesn't have to deal with any certificates with all the individual Unify servers. It also allows him opportunity if he wants to filter or modify the data in transit for uh, whatever reason it, it can be done. And if you get some of the more advanced proxies, there's even filtering you may want to do. That way, if someone tries to request something or tries to do, uh, you know, if you are following the news, there's been a recent Apache uh, problem of that was discovered. The proxy can be can if you get it gets a little more into web application firewall but it's at least has some ability to apply some rules to it to say no 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 don't let that type of weird data come through that's not acceptable before it gets to the back end web server so because it's actually terminating the tls and the security connection um before it passes off to the other one and by the way you can have and i do for example in my unify i don't bother installing a certificate in my unify server itself so the certificate brokering is has to go unchecked between HA proxy and my Unify. But on the other side, when I connect to unify.lawrencesystems.com, I get a proper valid SSL cert. And that's kind of goes to the, like I said, where the termination is, where the termination is being handled for the proxy. Yeah, I think one simple analogy is, is to think of this as like having an operator or a receptionist at a company. You call and speak to John, you talk to the receptionist first, and then that person's like, okay, then transfers you and you're talking to that person. Or if you're asking for a different person, then that then the receptionist will say, yeah, I don't know who you're talking about. So in that case, you, they get a 404. It's like, I, yeah, I, we don't have that here. Uh, so if you're asking for Nextcloud and the proxy knows what that is, yeah, okay, you, you go over here. That's where Nextcloud is. And then they ask for a book stack or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, we don't have that server. They get a 404. Um, but like you said, the SNI is basically looking at the name that's being requested and uh, making sure that everything, you know, forwards properly. And that could that could be kind of difficult to explain, um, but we'll just kind of keep the SNI part of it very simplistic. I know it's much more complicated <laughs> than I made it out to be just now, but um, it, it's like 
in the phone example, you could have your phone number publicly available and everybody in the world can call you, or you can have a proxy in front of you, you know, like a receptionist that's routing traffic accordingly. Um, and that's kind of what it is because you have that, you have one hop in between or a man in the middle or person in the middle that's handing things off. And um, I, I personally, my, the way I, I am now, I proxy everything. Like, even if it's not a, an issue where I need to, you know, it's just one name, one server. There's not even multiple sites on there. I put a proxy in front of it. Always put a proxy in front of it. I think when you get to a certain point, you'll probably start proxying everything. Yeah, it becomes the hardest part is getting the base configuration set up. Once you've got one or two domains working, well, I would say two, because two, that way you can say, oh, I see the difference between these two domains. The next 30 or 40 that you add are really, really simple to add because it's just kind of repeating the same thing and changing the IP address and adding a new rule to match whichever um, the SNI is on there. Now, you can go a little bit more advanced because you can... Uh, there's ways in HA proxy if you play with the more advanced rules in it, uh, even inside of PFSense. So you can do like some of the subdomain. Uh, and then, a, then um, I'm trying to remember how it would be like the fully qualified domain plus an extra URL to get it to redirect to other things. There's lots of little nuances. It's all about getting the base part of it set up. And then when it comes to let's encrypt, I mean, I think that's the ultimate goal. I, yeah. I mean, I hate seeing that red X or that broken padlock icon in the browser, even though. It's something that's not externally available anyway, but I hate that. And I hate seeing that error message come up like this is a self-signed cert. I know, I know it is. I'm the one that that self-signed it. <laughs> so um, I'm aware of I'm aware of this, but you know, the browser is gonna act the same whether it's internal or external. So having a let's encrypt cert is the ultimate goal. Now you have to verify that you own the domain, otherwise, someone else could just say, Yeah, I own your domain, and I'm just gonna point all the certs to me and be a man in the middle and just create some um, havoc there. So you don't want that, but you know, let's encrypt has to verify you own it. How, how, how do you do that? So the easiest way to do it, if something is internet facing, so I'll use Linode as an example. If you have a website set up there and you have the domain pointing to the a record or the IP address to that uh, Linode, it's super easy because it's publicly available. The IP address and the domain are a one-to-one -one match. And if you uh, request a let's encrypt cert, then it's going to send out the request and then it's going to come back and verify that it does come back to the right place and then it approves the cert. So the communication has to go out and then has to come back in in order for that to work. And that's easy because it's a one-to-one -one match. It's externally available. It's out in the cloud. There's an IP address. There's a domain matching that IP. Now, when you are inside your network, that becomes a little bit more challenging because when you have a server internally asking for a Let's Encrypt cert, it's going out your cable modem. So regardless of what your server's IP is in, inside your network, what Let's Encrypt sees is your public IP coming off your cable modem. And then it's going to send the communication right back to verify this. Is it going to come back to the server? No, it's going to hit your cable modem or, or PFSense or whatever. And PFSense is like, yeah, uh, no, I'm not that. I'm PFSense. I'm not Nextcloud. What are you talking about? And then it doesn't work because it can't verify. That that's the problem. The solution is you have the you know HA proxy, Nginx, whatever in the middle that's routing it to the appropriate place. But it can be a little confusing because now you're you're trying to make sure that you know depending on what the request going out is that it comes back to the same server. And I think that's where people start to get confused. 
But as long as you have the, um, you first get the HA proxy or, or Nginx working to where you can go to it from the outside, and then it you get to it, even though there's no cert, so you know the routing works because you're off your network. You could try your phone on 3G or 4G or whatever, and you know off the Wi-Fi, try to go to it, and if you see the right site, the routing works. So once that box is checked, then you should be able to get the cert by uh, doing the DNS challenge, which will just go out and then come back in. But then you mentioned DNS challenges, there's specific ones, which um, is a different way of doing this where Let's Encrypt uses an API call. So if you have a membership at Linode, AWS, there's a bunch of these, you could actually hook it into that and they could just communicate directly with that DNS service and the DNS services say, yeah, Jay owns that domain, you're good. And then it verifies it. And that way it's great because it doesn't really, I mean, you don't really have to have as much routing there because it's not expecting a web server on the other end it's just verifying that through API, which um, if you have an account on one of those, then I think that's even better. Yeah, that's one of the easiest ways to do it, because let's say you are in a situation where you're behind carrier grade NAT and you just have no interest in opening up things to the world. Matter of fact, that's how Jay is sitting right now. He has none of the things publicly exposed. In those circumstances, this is where using Let's Encrypt is great because you can get that wildcard certificate, but that wildcard certificate does have to apply to a fully qualified domain. That's as we said in the beginning, why you have to buy one. Let's encrypt will validate it with the API call. You can get the wildcard cert, and then you can internally have all of your different things and your browser will respect it internally. So it'll be you know, your devices.yourdomain.com, whatever you want to name them. You can get rid of all those SSL uh, errors and not have to worry about them. Your browser will be happy with, you know, no little click advance and go next or proceed with caution type of error messages. And all of this is done without any public visibility. So you're not adding any type of risk to your network because you, you're still not opening up your network. You're just adding the convenience of having everything in a really, you know, clean looking interface. Um, because the alternative to, and I will mention because someone, I'm sorry, no one threw in the chat there. There is ways you can tell things in to trust your own certs and come up with your own naming scheme. It's there's ways to make that work. It's almost, I would say, in some ways, more complicated and adding a bunch of because you got to add things to your certificate store to make that work. And um, right. Yeah, I, I don't, it's too much. And I would actually, if you're going to put the time and effort, um, it's just easier because for each new device, you'd have to also do that on your network. When you don't do that and you use something that's encrypt, it becomes very simple because any new device on your network, if someone, you just get a new phone, open it up, you can go to provided the DNS works and your phone's connected to the internal DNS of your internal network. You can go to all the fully qualified domains uh, for your different services and they'll all connect fine without any SSL errors. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's, and I think that's um, the best way to think about everything. Um, another challenge that I think some of these proxy services can help solve, but it, it, it's kind of like what you want to achieve. The challenge is if you have something in the cloud, but it's not publicly accessible, which you might think like, wait, what it's in the cloud, but it's not publicly accessible. The whole definition of the cloud is publicly accessible. You can always set up any cloud provider to not allow any traffic other than from your IP or you could use like zero tier or something like that and just not allow the public into the cloud instance at all. And only you can get into it. But then the problem is you try to do the let's encrypt challenge and then the communication goes out. It can't come back because it's not pu publicly accessible. So then you can start to get into a challenge where you have to remember 
to um, temporarily open the firewall, which I hate doing, just to let that go through and then close it back down. Hopefully you don't forget to do that. It's not really the best way to do it, but sometimes you have these challenges and you have to um, figure this out because it's not like Let's Encrypt is going to tell you, these are all of our IP addresses. If you whitelist these, then the challenge will always work. I, I don't think they want you to know what all their IPs are. And even if they did, and even if they didn't mind, They'll probably just change them anyway because what the IPs are today may not be what they are tomorrow for the uh, you know servers on the Let's Encrypt side of things. So it's really hard unless there's some kind of reverse DNS mapping or whitelisting to make that work to where you have to have something in the middle to allow that communication to happen. Um, but you know, if at the worst case, you could open it up temporarily, get the cert, and close it down. But you just have to be really good on remembering to close it back down. Yes. It's um, and, and a few people ask this question. I have a video, and you can extrapolate from this video um, to other services. But I have a video called PFSense DNS overrides, and what DNS override means is how you can have different external DNS versus internal DNS. Uh, someone referred to it as split brain. I don't think it's the right term for it. Split DNS is the right name though. Um, that you can do. So I do have a video on that for a few people asking in the comments to better understand. I have dove into that topic. Matter of fact, if you search, I've actually talked how to use dig, how to look up different records for DNS. Um, I, I've done several videos on that topic that you'll find tutorials on my channel. Have you, have you had on your channel, Jay? I'm trying to think like I have like almost 800 videos now. I'm getting to the point where I'm like, what have I done again? Oh, I still um, to make sure I had that video. <laughs> like if I don't, I'm, I need to add it to my list. Um, so I'm, I'm probably just uh, not remembering, but maybe I did cover it. Um, there, there's a lot to this. It's, it's very, there, there's a lot of different moving pieces. But I think when you take away the moving pieces that aren't relevant to your use case, then what you're left with is pretty much one or two pass forward and there's only one or two ways to do it. And it's pretty self-explanatory at that point, but you have to take away the things that don't really matter and understand your environment. Like, do you, do you have access to a static IP? Probably not, but if you do, it makes it a lot easier. Um, when it comes to VPN, there's some added challenge there because I've noticed with different operating systems, OpenVPN um, handles differently with the official client. So I've noticed on Windows, for example, and I think macOS, but I don't remember, it'll automatically uh, tell the client to forward DNS to your internal DNS. So if you're looking for NextCloud, even if it's not externally available, you're connected to, to your VPN, to your home network from somewhere else, then you know it knows where NextCloud is because it's using your PF sensor, your router, your firewall, whatever it is, as your DNS server. Now, other operating systems, I think Linux is one, it doesn't automatically do that. So it'll just, like all the name lookups fail, even though you are on the VPN, there, there's a way to get around this. There's a package you install and a couple lines of config you add to the uh, client config file that I won't go over right now. But there are some challenges there that you'll probably uh, run into, but a quick Google search will, will get you the answer there. But I, I mentioned this because um, it just seems so weird that it's so different based on the operating system, even though the client comes from the same place. I don't know if they fixed this yet. We had a conversation about this last night. So depending on your operating system, you might have to do a little bit of uh, hand editing there. Um, but um, one of the reasons why I bring this up is to segue into your solution though, because you can just like avoid all of what I just said and, and do absolutely none of that and not even have that problem by using your trick for local DNS in public or local IPs in public DNS. I think you explained it better than me. So I'll let you do that. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely a fun topic. The, um, yeah. 
it's DNS. It's always DNS. It's probably. <laughs> so on, on your end, basically, if I understand correctly, you're putting the internal IPs to your internal servers in the public DNS server. Yes. Yes. I, I have that. And I break it down in my video because it's, um, it's a fun way to solve, like you said, the VPN problem when you have people remote. So you can look up some of them and there's some of the ones are still valid from the video. So I can point them using my digital ocean uh, where it's hosted on one of them. Cause I did some, that's where the demo was done for those of you wondering, even though Linode's a sponsor, I still have stuff there too. And uh, you can look that up. It's kind of, you can split this around quite a bit and it's, it's not as uh, cut and dry as you might think. Like you can only be here all here. You can actually put them in multiple places uh, for yep. that. Where you can put it um, where if you're inside the network, it resolves this way. Outside network resolves this way. But one of the problems we have was um, when we were playing with phones and Android likes to use its own DNS. We said, you know, I can solve this problem real quick. We just made the public DNS point to the private because Android decided I can't remember. Um, it's the way Google wants to always look up a different DNS server. Uh, mm. So it's like, it's another way of solving that problem. <laughs> There's all kinds of clever workarounds and the C name uh, combination with dynamic DNS is just one of many. There's um, all these different um, clever things that people have come up with to, um, you know, route things and to, you know, set up DNS that I think are, are fun, but, you know, without going too much on a tangent, I think, those are probably the main two I think are the most useful to our audience. Yes. And I did see because uh, this comes on the heels of the uh, big Facebook outage. It's always DNS until it's BGP. So that's true. And for those of you that yeah. don't know, uh, I, you know, depending on your list, this is uh, October 6th. So it's right after the big Facebook outage. I have it on uh, October 4th. And a quick explainer is uh, the difference between DNS and BGP. DNS tells you where things are and BGP tells you how to get there. And both of those things were actually broken for uh, Facebook. So <laughs> I wonder what the, the, the specs or the, the analytics are as far as like the human side of this without Facebook being online then people wouldn't have been upset by memes as much yeah. and there'd be less stress in the world overall. And people would be sharing fewer memes because you can't. So I think productivity might've increased. <laughs> It'd be yeah. kind of interesting to see how that Im impacted things. But uh, yeah, BGP is, um, it, it's one of those convenient things, but it also can conveniently break other things too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we're going to cover BGP on the home lab show, but it might be a topic. Um, that we, we, me and Jay have a mutual friend we can bring in, uh, that does manage BGP. He helps protect the world against, uh, DDoS stuff. So he can answer questions about it. Um, he's done some clever things. So there's, yeah, but it, maybe, maybe we'll do an episode on it. Cause a lot of people ask what it is, but it's not, I'll tell you this much. It's not likely something you're going to be using in the home lab, but I will admit you can set it up. And I thought about doing a lab demo of it because you can use BGP. It's not the, uh, the most ideal way, but it can be a fun learning experience to actually build a network and understand uh, how routing and peering announcements work. I actually played with it a little bit and thought it was kind of novel. I just never did a video. I know I don't have a video on that specific topic, how to design your own internal BGP. Um, there, oddly, we've done things uh, like that, though, and reasons we've played with some of this is because internally here, sometimes when we're configuring something, we'll plug the public IP addresses in and actually have them routing inside of our own network uh, before we de deploy a firewall to a client. So we can actually go through the whole setup if we want. And we've 
because we can, we built a network that matched the public IP space. Now that's not gonna actually route to the internet fully, but it was us able to have the firewall tested and make sure all the different port forwardings and everything worked. And we just had to do our own simulated section of the internet here. But that's we're now we're getting way off topic of where we started with proxy yep. and, and domain. Yeah, that's, that could be, <laughs> I don't know if that'll translate to an episode or not, but it's yeah. uh, definitely well, a thing that here. So, you know, hear what you guys think of all this. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely uh, something. All right. Well, I think we covered everything we had on our list for uh, getting domain. So get your domain, get started. It's a great learning process. Uh, it's it's a great aggravation process. <laughs> right. Yeah, I actually have uh, memories of just like, you know, when I was learning, getting frustrated with it and just getting very upset, shouting a few expletives and I'd go out for a jog and, and then clear my head and come back. Oh, right. Of course it didn't work because of whatever it was. And it was just like you just get so involved in this you're trying to map it out in your head and it just you just get stressed out just uh, you know take a break you know just go for a run or do whatever you do for unstressing come back to it and uh, i think it'll make a lot of sense just take your time and um, i think you know being frustrated is actually a good thing when it comes to learning because that means you're being challenged and that also means you're going to you know come out with a um a lesson at the end of it and i think breaking things and fixing things is usually the way we learn anyway yeah you know, and um, it's it's just it's a lot of fun. And once you have it, now you have the diversity to really start playing with that. It's the whole thing is being able to get some of these tools in your hand. So I know there's at least a few people that want to try and host their own mail. There's always people that want to do that. Uh, yep. Take it from two mail server administrators. Me and Jay both did that for years. And uh, I mean, I was a mail server administrator back in the send mail days in 1999 was my first uh, job where commercially I did it. I actually ran it not commercially before then in the earliest days. But yeah, once you learn send mail, then I learned postfix. Then I also learned exchange and I admin these things. I actually was kind of happy in some ways when I surrendered to G Suite and got rid of my own mail server. I said, yeah. right, I'm done. <laughs> I ran my own mail server for a long time and then I decided that mental health is important. And then I just uh I just changed my MX records to a different provider and I was done with it. I just had enough. Yeah, eventually you'll have enough. Oh, uh, something I, you know, we didn't touch on this. Well, last thing I'll leave you with. Yes, if you want, you can set up your own name servers. That actually is a little bit more involved. And I have done that with Hover. So you can look up, I think, ns1.lawrencesystems.com is valid. Um, those are a little bit different type of record. It gets a little off topic. But if you're into hosting, you can build a primary uh, where you buy a domain, create a subdomain for name servers. And then there's a trick to getting them. And it, like I say, out of scope of this, because it, it's been a while since I've had to do this, where you can be registered as authoritative name servers that then can be managed. So you can manage all your other domains on it. It's actually something we used to do. We used to do hosting. So I still have all that configured in the back end. Um, but yeah, that's, it is one more thing. Just answer the question when someone asks, can you do that? The answer is yes. So <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Explaining that, like you said, it's hard. And then you got to talk about glue records and all these other things. And yep. sure glue record was the word I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah. The glue record set up. So yeah, uh, yeah that's a lot. Okay. That's a, the, that could be its own topic. Um, maybe we'll dive into that a different day. But thank you for joining us on the Home Lab Show. Uh, this was a lot of fun talking about this. I, I Hopefully we gave you more things to dive into, more things to buy. I will give a shout out to those of you that want to dive deeper. Is uh, Look at the learning 
uh, things they have over at Cloudflare on things like BGP. They have some really good graphics and explainers on how that works. And they have a lot of write-ups on how DNS works. So if you want to break down some of the confusion of it, you can spend a lot of time in a rabbit hole. But I, I realized that doing a video the other day that, wow, they have, and I linked to their BGP video in one of them for, they just have good explainers uh, and solid write-ups on it. So uh, it's another place you can learn to start diving into what all these records mean and things like that. So, yeah, all right. Thanks everyone for joining. Awesome having you here. Thank you very much. See you next awesome. time. See you later.